Perimeter Church podcast. If you use Facebook, how many friends do you have? Of that group, how many are real friends? In a church of hundreds, much less thousands, we must similarly get small to get real. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Rooted, a lifestyle of radical dependence with this sermon entitled Rooted in Discipleship, which covers 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray, and uh, we'll jump into where God's leading us this morning. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to to gather as your people that we get each week. Father, would you bless this time that we have? We pray it each week, but Father, we mean it. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would come and have your way with us, that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, and you give us eyes to see the beauty of who you are and our great, great need for you. So, Lord, we give this time to you. We ask you to bless it. Teach us, O God, by your Holy Spirit. Make me a vessel. Would you do it for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, over the last uh, few weeks, as we've been in this Rooted to Flourish generosity initiative where we're uh, just inviting you all to begin to consider what would it look like for you to invest financially and in in your service and in your prayer to Perimeter Church over these next couple of years. Uh, I've been meeting, having a number of meetings one-on-one with with a number of couples. I've been having some meetings in small group settings as well, some desserts and dinners. And then, of course, these vision nights that are for all to come. And in those smaller venues, uh, one of the questions that I have been asking in every one of those venues is this. I would love to hear from you. Would you tell me, what is it that you love about Perimeter Church? What is it that, that you just say, this is, this is something that God has done in my life here that I am eternally grateful for, and this is maybe something that causes me to want to be a part, to invest in what God is doing at Perimeter. And I'm getting a lot of great answers in return, so many different things, that stories of, of life change and transformation and all the different things that God is doing. But the, the answer that I get over and over and over again, by far and away, overwhelmingly, the the top answer I'm getting is this, discipleship. It's discipleship. What I'm hearing are things like this, people saying, I I would have considered myself a Christian, and I think I was a Christian, but I just, my understanding of what it meant to walk with God, to be a Christian, was very shallow, very minimal. And then I got involved in a discipleship relationship, either one-on-one or with a group, And God began to do some things in my life that transformation began to happen and and growth began to happen in a way that I wouldn't have expected. And God did a work in me that only he could do through this biblical truth, this biblical anchor of discipleship. And I hope you know, I want you to know, and this is not at all to to toot the horn of perimeter or to say that we're great, that we're perfect. We, We are far from perfect. There are many, many things that we could do better. But I hope you know how unique this culture of discipleship is here. We live in the context of the church globally, especially in the Western Hemisphere, especially in America, where church has been reduced to this space. 
Give me an incredible worship experience in a large gathering where I can come and be anonymous and go home. Give me a great worship set that stirs me and then give me a sermon that's on fire. And although the preaching of the word is incredibly important, it's biblical. We are to preach the word as I'm doing this morning. And and worship with instruments is biblical and it's good. And although those are the things that we need to be a part of as the life of the church, it's interesting, is it not, that when Jesus left us with his parting words from his ministry here on earth, he had lived a perfect life, he had, took our, he had taken our sins upon his shoulders, bearing the wrath of God on the cross, he had risen from the, from the dead, defeating the penalty of sin itself, death itself, and then he had resurrected for 40 days, appearing to over 500 people, as the scriptures say. And then he ascended, and right before he ascended into heaven, to go back to the right hand of the Father. He left us with what he wanted us to remember most. Is this not what we do? This is very human. If you have the opportunity to be on your deathbed and you say, what are the final words that I want to impart to those that I love the most? Here's what I want to say. This is Jesus doing that. And what he said was this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't it interesting that he didn't say, and go and get large gatherings of people and have great worship services? Go and do incredible events that would stir people There's a time and place for those, obviously, and this is Sunday morning gatherings Or again, I don't want to minimize that. But the way, the way, the primary way, let me be clear, the primary way, not the only way, the primary way that the kingdom of God grows is by a people convinced that we possess something that is so worthy, that is of such great value, that is such huge treasure that we faithfully impart to others one relationship at a time that they too may experience and know what we experience and know in Jesus. It's the primary way the kingdom grows. I mean, think about this. This is what Jesus did. Yes, Jesus preached some, and it was awesome. But the primary way in which he said, this is how my kingdom is going to grow, is that he picked these 11 ragmuffins. Twelve, and then we all know the story on Judas. But these men that, that he, he pulls together and, and the world looks and goes, um, that's who you're going to choose to change the world? I mean, these were men who were terrified. I mean, we see Jesus gives these parting words of make disciples of all nations and then he ascends into heaven and they don't know what to do. They're like, oh, okay. And so what do they do? They go back, Acts, the book of Acts starts with them being in the upper room praying, but terrified. Not a, they're afraid to get out because they're afraid they're going to be killed because Jesus, the one who they follow, was killed. And so they're thinking, okay, well, that's what's going to happen to me too. And so they're terrified. And the Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out on them yet. But as they're praying in that upper room, God does what he said he would do. He sends the helper capital H, the Holy Spirit, to indwell them. Tongues of fire 
<laughs> what was that like? And the church in Acts chapter 2, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, was birthed through these men who from the world's standard had no business leading anything. This is how God has planned from the very beginning to grow his church. To the point to where here we are this morning, 2019 in Johns Creek, Georgia. And we are recipients, one relationship at a time, of this treasure. It wasn't long after Jesus said those words recorded for us in Matthew 28 that we commonly call the Great Commission that another man came along that had formerly been a murderer of Christians and self-described as the worst of sinners, yet had a dramatic conversion to say the least, so much so that he changes his name from Saul to Paul. And outside of Jesus himself, I would argue he becomes perhaps the greatest disciple maker in the history of the church. In the last letter that Paul wrote, um, he wrote from a prison in Rome. Almost certainly what is modern, the modern day, what they call the Mamertine prison over there. I've had a chance to visit it. Most likely the, the very prison that, that Paul and Peter were held in when they were in Rome. And it's literally a hole in the ground. They would have dropped him in there and the ceiling was about five feet tall. He's in chains. Obviously no bathroom, so you can imagine how it smelled. And this is where Paul was when he wrote this final letter in a very similar place that Jesus was right before he ascended to say, okay, here's, here's what I want to say to you most. And he's writing it to this young pastor, perhaps even in his late teenage years, named Timothy. And Timothy's very similar to those 11 that were terrified in the upper room. He's, he's scared. And his mentor who has poured his life into him, the one who has discipled him so well, he knows and, and Paul know, they both know, that, he's, that Paul's about to be killed. So Paul pins this letter to Timothy and gives him some incredible and important instruction. And here's what he says to him in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you then, my child, notice the affection that Paul has for Timothy. It's a father-son type relationship because they had, they had loved each other well. They had done a lot of life together. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray briefly. Father, thank you for this word. Even though it's three short verses, so much in here for us to get and to understand. So would you teach us this morning? Bless the reading and the teaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things I want you to, to get this morning from these three verses. One point from each verse that instruct us greatly on what it looks like for us to be men and women who make disciples. And the first one is this. Before we even get to the action 
the participatory action of making disciples through Christ in us, we first have to be strengthened. And so what Paul tells Timothy right there in verse 1 is that there is a grace that will strengthen you for the task. There is a grace that strengthens. He says this, let me read it again. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is a task before us that we cannot pull off. The task to make disciples, to entrust to faithful men and women the truths of the faith. We can't pull that off. If we try to do it in our own strength, uh, we may be able to pull it off for a little while, but eventually... Uh, without question, without doubt, we will eventually fall on our face in frustration and discouragement and disappointment and fatigue because the task of making disciples can be an exhausting one. And it's not, it's not a task, it's not a calling that God has intended that we would ever do in our own strength. And the good news is he provides the strength. He gives us himself. One of the great mysteries of the gospel, one of the incredible truths of the gospel, is that when you and I believe upon Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we say, you, Jesus, are the only one who can save me from my sin, uh, he unites himself to us. The Spirit of God Himself, the Spirit of Christ Himself, the Scriptures even uh, say it over and over again, in Christ, that we are in Him and He is in us once we believe upon Him, once He rescues us. And this is a union that we have with Him that then unites us to everything of Him, including His strength. But it's interesting here uh, that Paul says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That feels a little abstract. What does it mean to be strengthened by the grace? And I want you to think about this. I want you to remember what he's ultimately saying here is remember the gospel of grace. What is grace? If we're going to be strengthened by it, we have to really understand what grace is. And we commonly define grace in the church as uh, us getting, you and I getting what we don't deserve. But, but I want to ratchet that up just a little bit and be a little bit more clear with that. It's not just you and I getting what we don't deserve. It's that you and I get the exact, full, complete opposite of what we do deserve. What grace is this? What grace is, is it, it's, it's a reminder, it's a calling to remember that you and I, every single one of us, are not sinful because of what we do. We are sinful because of who we are. It's what we're born into. Every human that's walked the face of the earth, other than Jesus himself, is born with the, with the residue, the sinful residue of Adam. To where left unto ourselves, apart from the grace of God, we will at every turn, with no hesitation, reject God. We will choose evil. We will choose chaos. We will embrace chaos. We will choose to worship anything and everything but him. We will orient our lives mainly with ourselves at the center, trying in every way to fill ourselves with whatever we can to give us life and purpose and meaning and identity, all the while rejecting the very one who gives us all those things, because in our nature, we don't know any other way. And God intervenes with a grace that is so glorious and so unthinkable and so immeasurable 
so unimaginable that we would say, uh, what? He intervenes and he comes to us and he chases us down with his grace that says, there is not one thing that you could ever do in and of yourself to ever warrant my favor, but I'm going to do it for you. In every way, you should be the recipient of my wrath because sin deserves wrath and I'm a just God. And if I'm going to be just, if I'm going to be a righteous God, then I must punish sin. So therefore, sin is upon your shoulders. So therefore, I must punish you. And he says, but I'll take that. And I'll come and I'll achieve the standard in your place that you can't achieve. I will be perfect for you. And then I will come and I will shoulder the very thing that should be upon your shoulders, which is the wrath of God itself and I'll put it on me and I'll be your substitute in every way even to the point of resurrection the very death that you can't overcome because the power of sin is death the penalty of sin is death I'll, I'll take care of that as well and I'll resurrect from the dead doing everything in your place so that if you trust me give yourself fully to me by faith in Christ, all this that I have done will be yours. You will have victory over sin. You will have victory over death. You will have power and strength to live the life I have called you to live. If I had read to you the first chapter of Second Timothy in this letter, what Paul tells Timothy over and over again is remember Remember your grandmother's faith, Timothy. Remember your mom's faith, Timothy. Remember your faith, Timothy. Remember the gospel. Remember grace. Because when we remember daily the gospel of grace and we ponder what Christ has done for us, in so doing, we don't just remember and say, wow, that's good. We remember and we are strengthened. The grace that saves us is also the grace that sustains us, but even more, it's the grace that strengthens us. I love the way that Tony Meredith says it. He says, our strength is not in how long we have been Christians and how much we know about the Bible or in how long we have been in ministry. Our strength this very moment is in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our strength is derived from our union with Jesus and is supercharged by our daily communion with Jesus. Be strengthened, my child, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Second thing I want you to get from verse 2. Here's the action of making disciples he says this he says and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men so there's a there's a truth that we need to entrust there's a truth to entrust a grace to be strengthened by and a truth to entrust this word this is the truth the bible the infallible inerrant holy god-breathed word of god this is this is the truth that it contains the gospel it contains everything that is profitable for life and faith and so on one hand, we are to preserve this. We are to protect it with everything that we have, but that's not enough. We aren't just to protect it and preserve it. We are to pass it on, to entrust to faithful men and women who will then do the same. And that word entrust intrigues me because it's actually the very same word that Jesus used 
while dying on the cross, taking his very last breath, the, the last words recorded for us by Jesus on the cross where he said this. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That word commit is the same word that we translate in trust here. It's interchangeable. Into, into your hands I, co- I commit or I entrust my spirit. Same thing here, that you would entrust or that you would commit these truths of what it means to walk with Jesus and know God to faithful men and women. And this is why that intrigues me so much, because think about it. What is Jesus doing in that moment? What Jesus is doing in that moment is he's taking, he's taking what is the most precious thing that could ever exist, the spirit of Christ himself, and he is saying, I am entrusting my spirit to the safe hands of the Father. So perhaps Paul was thinking of that very thing when he says to us, take this incredible, precious truth of the gospel and commit it and trust it into safe hands who will deal with it appropriately who won't take the truths of the gospel and all the implications that come from it and deal with it haphazardly but that that you will entrust it to people who are faithful and who will then turn around and do the same with others we'll make mistakes in that I'll speak to that in just a moment we won't do that perfectly But in a sense, if you're a follower of Christ, one of your jobs, one of your responsibilities is to constantly be keeping your head on a swivel. Who are the faithful men and women in my life? To entrust the truth of the gospel. Entrusting the truths of our faith to faithful men and women is often less about content dissemination and more about life-on-life relationships. Certainly content dissemination is a part of it. But discipleship is way, way more about, uh, well, let me say it this way first. Discipleship is not me teaching you, if I'm going to disciple someone, me teaching you all that I know so that you can be like me. Discipleship is actually saying, I'm running to the one who is making me more like him. Would you run with me? Let's impart on this journey together and let's lock arms together and let's run to Jesus together. And certainly there may be some things along the way that you learn from me, but there's going to be a lot that I learn from you. And it's not about me teaching you, it's about him teaching us. Discipleship is first and foremost what we call life on life, missional discipleship. Sharing life with one one another in such a way. To where, yes, content happens along the way. But more than anything, we're rubbing shoulders with with one another to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to hold one another accountable, to pick one another up when we are too weary to keep running towards Jesus and say, I'm not going to let you stay there. I'm going to even carry you during this season and entrust you into the safe hands of Jesus. That's discipleship. Thirdly, there's a hardship to endure. If we're going to embrace this life, if we're going to truly take to heart being men and women who make disciples, 
Then according to verse 3, the implication that Paul immediately goes into, he says, look, entrust a faithful man who will teach others also. Oh, by the way, if you do that, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. Your translation may say, and your hardship as a good soldier of Christ. But the bottom line is this. If we're going to embark on this type of life, if we're going to take God at his word and say, yes, this is a call for all of us to be disciple makers, then we also have to embrace that it is a calling to share in suffering. And let me be clear, I don't think this is Paul saying, hey, Timothy, share in my suffering, which he did, certainly. Paul endured a lot of suffering and so did Timothy eventually. But I think it's even higher calling, it's a bigger calling to say, uh, share in the sufferings of Jesus. Because I want to give you three things real quick about what it means to endure hardship. The first one is this. Discipleship is costly. To be a disciple of Jesus and to, and to make disciples of Jesus is a costly dying to self on a continual basis. This is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's a call to die to everything that the world says life is about, to find life in Jesus, to make disciples of Jesus, knowing that in the, in the time uh, being that I'm going to surrender a lot of things that the world looks at and says, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. Perhaps parents look at you and say, what have you, unbelieving parents saying, you're crazy. You've, you've got to be a part of some cult. Maybe you look at your parents and you say, you're crazy. You want me to be a part of that cult, whatever it may be, but there's a misunderstanding oftentimes from the world around you that they look at you and they say, what? It's costly. I mean, here's the thing, though. I I don't think in, in America we really have to endure much hardship as disciples of Christ, but it is a very real, real reality for many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. That being a disciple of Jesus and making disciples of Jesus is a threat on their life. Where they know that if I continue to do this, I will most likely be killed or persecuted in some horrible way. And yet they continue because Jesus is so worth it. other thing is this think about this why is it costly because we are called to suffer with Jesus and it was costly to him it was costly to him and and that's the understatement of the year I mean this is King Jesus this is the one who who spoke and created all of us I mean Colossians 1 says that we were created by him and for him Jesus were the was the hands the father spoke creation into being he is the hands in a sense that created us he is the king of the universe and he was seated on high Philippians 2 said that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped but rather he humbled himself and he came in the likeness of man like a servant and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So he surrendered riches in heaven to come and dwell among sinners and experience the costliness in every way of what it meant to make disciples. And he gives the same call to us. He says, what what this means, my child, is that it means that it'll cost you something. 
but there will be great reward in return. Maybe in this life, but certainly in the life to come. Second thing I want to tell you about why we endure hardship is because discipleship is messy. It very rarely works the way that we want it to. We have these dreams and aspirations, if you've tried to make disciples, of that I will live life with some men or women in my life and I will, um, I will impart to them my wisdom. And we'll sit around and have the most incredible biblical discussions you'd ever imagine. And we'll share our faith and everyone we speak to will fall to their knees and repent. And I will be the greatest disciple maker the world has known since Paul himself. And our pride fantasies get destroyed very quickly. Because we realize this is a messy job. I came across a stat recently where this very successful entrepreneur who had started uh, several, several very successful businesses, many of which you would recognize, has been in every way successful in the eyes of the world. He, he made this statement. He said, I would say that my experience has been in everything that I have tried to get going in the corporate world, 60% failure, 40% success. And I read that and I immediately thought of my discipleship making efforts. And I thought, yeah, that sounds about right. In the, in the wisdom that I had, as best as I could, trusting the Lord, I tried to entrust a faithful man, but some, some didn't want it. Some did squander it. And then I tend to sometimes just take that upon myself and self-condemn and say, what's wrong with me? And not really embracing, hey, this is just a part of the hardship. It's not going to always pan out the way that I want it to. Another thing is this. Uh, as a part of that messiness, people are just inconvenient. <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> is that okay? We're not all made the same way in terms of our personality and our preferences. And because of that, there's things that you want and desire in your life, preferences that you have, lifestyles that you do that I don't, I don't like those things or want to be a part of those things. And you go, but if you're going to do life with me, don't you want to do this with me? And I go, I don't want to do that. Why don't you do this? And there's, there's this going on, right? Yet God is pushing on you to say, pursue that person. You're like, but I'd rather pursue someone who's like me and likes everything that I like, God. Would that be okay? That, that one sucks the life out of me. Can I, can I pursue someone and create a, a group of people that I pour into that don't suck the life out of me? And you know what I think sometimes Jesus says? It's a little corny, but I think it's true. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> you literally suck the life out of me. <laughs> but I pursued you anyway. I chased you down with a grace that wouldn't quit and still doesn't. People are inconvenient, but that is not an excuse to not make disciples. Lastly, it's costly, it's messy, but it is so worth it. If any of you have ever had the experience of pouring your life, trying to, and let me just say, let me give you a simple definition of discipleship, just in case it's abstract right now. It's simply this. You taking the fundamental truths of what it means to follow Jesus in your experience, and in a life-on-life -life context, sharing them with someone else. It's the most basic definition of discipleship I can give you. And if you've ever been a part of doing that with someone and you see the light bulbs come on, 
and it begins to click for them. Oh my goodness, this Jesus really is as awesome as you say he is. He really is transforming my heart in ways that I've always dreamed of. He really is satisfying me at the depths that I've always longed for. And yes, I'm a mess in progress, but Jesus is amazing. And when you begin to see that happen in someone else, to the point to where they say, uh, I want this more and I want to tell people so that they too can know. And when you see that exponential multiplication begin to happening, happen where you see 2 Timothy 2.2 lived out, right? You begin to see you've entrusted, now they're entrusting. And they're entrusting, and they're entrusting You become addicted, so to speak, to this thing that God has called us to, that he's made us for, called discipleship. But I want to add one little phrase to the end of that sentence. It's worth it. Discipleship is worth it. But you can do it. Every single one of us. Jesus didn't say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, uh, except for the ones who maybe aren't really people persons and people who don't have much charisma and they aren't people gatherers and aren't great communicators. You don't have to do that, but just, he didn't give any stipulations. And it is going to look different for us depending on how he's made us. But the call to make disciples is to every Christian, every believer. What does that look like for you? Listen, we will believe the lie, and we believe it often, of what I just said. I've got to be a great communicator to really be able to do this. Maybe it's even a physical, like I need to be attractive to people in the sense that they want to be around me. I'm a people gatherer. I have charisma. I really, I mean, I need to be more like that guy. I need to be more like her. And we will doubt ourselves. We'll let the enemy come in in every angle and make us, convince us to believe that we don't have what it takes. Imagine if Paul had bought that lie. You ever paid attention to how the scripture describes Paul? 2 Corinthians 10.10 says this. This is the Corinthians' explanation of Paul. They said, uh, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. That's encouraging. (laughs) Uh, This is what I'm about to read to you. is not an inspired book of the Bible, and so, you know, take it for what it is. But I think it's probably a pretty accurate account. Uh, It's from the second century book called Acts of Paul and Thecla. Supposedly, this is Titus's, another disciple of Paul, his explanation of Paul. He says this, he was small in size, bald-headed, bandy-legged, or legged, well-built, with eyebrows meeting. Brother had a great unibrow. (laughs) Rather long nose, but full of grace. What if Paul had bought those lies? I got to look a certain way, be a certain way to really be a great disciple maker. No, he trusted in the strength and the power of Christ within him to do what only God can do through him. To grow his kingdom. One faithful man, one faithful woman at a time. Who will then 
teach others. So here's the question for us. Who are the Timothys in your life? Who has God placed in your life in the various places that you are, where you live, where you work, where you play is the language we like to use? That they're not there by mistake. God has put them in your life for the reason for you to pursue them, to spiritually multiply your life into them, to love them with the love of Christ, to pursue, pursue them with the grace of Christ, and to make disciples as messy and as costly as that may be It's so incredibly worth it. Maybe you're in a place of life where you say, I don't know that I'm ready for some Timothys, but I'm certainly ready for a Paul. Who are the men or women that are older in your life that can begin to pour into you? Would you go to them and ask them? I know there's a lot of men that have told me, man, I'd love to invest in a younger man in this church, but I don't know where to start. Here's what I'd say, make it easy on them. Go to him and say, would you invest in me? Let's, can we lock arms and run to Jesus together? Let's take this foundation, this incredible foundation of a culture of discipleship at Perimeter, and may we never slow down in building upon that foundation. That we would be a church radically dependent upon the Lord to make disciples, him doing through us what only he can do. And expanding his kingdom a few at a time. Let's do that. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your grace that strengthens us in every way to be able to do what you have called us to do. Father, may you so move in our hearts and in our lives that you would first and foremost open our eyes to see the worth of Jesus, that he is worthy. He's worthy to surrender our lives to be about his plan. Jesus, you are you're not just the model of how to make disciples. You're the one who indwells us and empowers us to do it. Your spirit, O oh Christ, in us, doing what only you can do. So, Father, we surrender ourselves to you. Jesus, we ask you to reign as Lord over our lives. Give us faith and confidence, not in our abilities, but in yours, to use us in ways that we could only imagine. That you, oh God, are the one that does immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us. And you do it all for your glory. So God, be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.